Hi, welcome to the Footsteps 100 Pounders meeting Wednesday, the 9th of December. And today I am delighted to introduce Don C as our speaker. Take it away, Don. Good morning, everyone. My name is Don. I'm a compulsive eater and food addict. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Rita. Uh, just put on my headset and microphone here because timing is bad. Right outside my window are the lawn people who have decided to clean the lawn and pick up all the leaves. And so there's a, if you hear sounds, that's what the sound is. But maybe with this microphone on, uh, you won't be able to hear it. So is there a timer? Somebody, if you could give me a five minute. My, uh, my plan today is five minutes on the, the old stuff, pre-program, pre and then 10 minutes through the recovery process and the last 10 on what I'm like now and how I live my life now and the, the uh, huge change that I'm grateful for that the program allowed me to, to, uh, to have. Miracle, I guess miracle is a, is a good word for it. Anyway, I've been in the program now for next month, will be 39 years, January 26, 1982. I count my abstinence from 1984, so that's about 36 plus uh, years of abstinence. I'm maintaining just a little under 200 pound weight loss now for about three decades. So it's uh, it's stable. Um, I have, I uh, somebody has some old pictures of me. I've forgotten who was gonna show those, if you wanna show those. Uh, so you can see me at about 400 pounds. Have you got those, Carol? Okay, well, oh, there we go. So this is me at about in the, it would be in my uh, 30s sometime, don't know exactly when, uh, but I was close to 400 pounds at that time. That was, that was my top weight. So thanks very much. So I, I weigh 200 now. So I lost a couple hundred and I've, I've kept that off now. Um, so a little bit on background. I came to the program at age 41. So I'll give you some, some 41 years and five minutes. Uh, Fear, doubt, and insecurity was dominated my life as, as a small child, as early as I can remember. A little bit out of step, a little different, a little separate from others, distrustful, afraid. The world was kind of a, not kind of, it was a hostile and unfriendly place where I had to do a lot of pretending and play acting in order to get along. Always felt a little bit different. I was raised in a mountain area of the states, uh, West Virginia, mountains of Appalachia, backwoods, coal mining country. Uh, my earliest memories are uh, being on the looking out the front window of the apartment and seeing the coal miners walking by on their way to the mines early in the morning, and then at five or six at night seeing them walk the other direction with their lunch buckets going home. So. That's where I grew up in that kind of environment. Pretty backwoods, uh, pretty simple. And also that fear that I'm talking about and that distrust, this was a place that looked at the rest of the world as an unfriendly place. Uh, that's all I heard from my mother and father early on. We can't trust those people out there. They're different. They're out to get us. You know, They want our coal, but they don't want anything else. They don't give anything, et cetera. So, I was an only child. Uh, I had an untreated, mentally ill, smothering mother and a uh, no feelings, uh, emotionless, workaholic father. So I never saw my father. He was working. He was following his, his 
what was accepted and what a man was supposed to do in those times. And that's work and support the family. And he did his best and sometimes would work uh, 12, 15 hour days. And I learned uh, something from him. That's one thing I got from him was this was this perseverance and that there's no free lunches you have to work for, for what you get. What did I get from my mother? I got from my mother fear, uh, feelings of being somehow different from others, feelings of less than, we're not as good as them. And uh, we, we didn't have much money. Uh, there was enough, we, we had food, uh, but it wasn't, there wasn't much beyond that. Uh, not good enough, different, never quite fit in feeling like I'm on the outside looking in. It was very much a them versus us. So siege men mentality. From my dad, I got never ask for help. You men don't ask for help. Fierce uh, self-sufficiency. Uh, also, men don't do feelings. You know, much, much later in my adult life, I uh, was uh, uh, thinking about divorce and uh, in a very bad marriage. And I started talking to him about divorce. And he said, oh, you can't do that. You know, you can't do that. We don't ever get a divorce. And we don't talk about these things. We don't talk about your feelings. Men don't do that. But as I said, on the positive side, I got a work ethic from him. Uh, he implanted the idea that, you know, nothing comes from nothing, uh, that there is no free lunch. So he had me working from about the seventh grade on. So, and you know, by the time I was eight, nine, 10 years old, I was, I was already uh, working actively working after school and then in the summer uh, full time. At age 41, uh, so we're jumping from, from, high school, from high school or, well, let me say a word about high school. High school was very much the same that I'm describing here, except I did a lot of play acting in high school. I was also an athlete. I, I did four sports in high school. Uh, the pictures of me in high school show me as the perfect, uh, physically built athlete for the football team, the basketball team, etc. cetera. Uh, things changed later on, uh, but that's where I was. I was a little bit overweight as a child uh, in the Husky, we call them in those days, you know, just beyond the normal size, one size up. And so we had to shop in a special place for me, but I was not obese, just a little bit, little bit over the average. And in high school, it worked out very well uh, as an athlete. That all worked out very well. So uh, I uh, went on to college, but had some trouble there. I was not ready for college. Uh, got my heart broken and uh, said, I am not, never gonna do this again. I'm never going to get my heart broken. And what happened, this is a short version of the story, is that I built a wall around me. Uh, I can remember standing on the roof, drunk uh, at a university with my hand raised to the sky, talking to a God I did not believe in, saying never again, never again, will I ever let anybody inside that can hurt me like that. And guess what, I didn't. I didn't quite realize what was going on, but there, that invisible wall went around, up around me and I became my father. My father was a man of stone and no feelings. Now I uh, uh, acted as if, I acted as if I had the feelings. And so uh, there was a marriage, there was children. Uh, and my wife used to beg me to you know, tell her that I loved her. And so I would say the words, but I felt nothing inside. And that's the story of my life emotionally from my through my twenties and thirties till I came into the program. 
that wall was up. I was uh, pretense, acting in pretense because I was, uh, I was ashamed. I had a lot of stuff. There was abuse as a child. There was abuse from an older, uh, uh, not immediate family, but extended family woman, not, uh, not man, uh, which went on for like two years. Um, uh, so I had low self-esteem, low self-respect. I felt less than, not as good as. And so add that to the wall that was up around me and I had some problems. My real serious food issue began in my early 20s uh, after that the thing I said with, the, with the, the roof and the saying never again, putting the wall up. I went in the military for three years. I dropped out of college. I went back to college later, but I was spent three years in the military where I met my wife and, start, and had kids and got back to the university that I had dropped out of. And then eventually came out of the army and uh, uh, finished up in the university and then went to work in the corporate world in the, uh, in the US. It was not what I wanted to do. And that's really a big part of my story. I really wanted a whole nother career, but I had been going to school at night for eight years. I had a wife and two children and I was tired and my wife was tired and we said, you know, this is just going to take another three or four years if I do this PhD. So I'm just going to go the short way and get a master's degree in industrial relations, go to work for some big corporation in the United States. And that's what I did. And it was a very big mistake because I was miserable there. All I did quite well because of my defect of perfectionism, but of course, perfectionism is just one of the stepchildren of fear. So I did quite well there, but I was never happy. So over the course of my 20s and 30s, the food really began to rear its ugly head. I'd be going, going up and down, up and down, up and down the familiar stair-step pattern through my 20s and 30s as I got more and more depressed about life. And then finally, as I said, I was close to that 400 pounds sometime in my mid-30s. From my mid-30s on, my obsession was suicide because I hated my life. I could see no way out. I felt totally imprisoned and I could not find anything else to do. I could not envision me living another 40 years in the kind of mess that I was in at that time. So I actually studied how to commit suicide and I had two kids. So one of the things uh, that I thought about, well, let's, let's do this the least messy way so that they don't come home and find a body after school or something like that. Because I had, did have a friend who had in fact hung himself in his basement and his kids, his grade school kids had come home and found their father hanging. So I didn't want any part of that. So uh, my solution was uh, suicide by uh, drowning, rent, uh, going off the bridge. So if you read my story, and you can read my story in the Overeaters Anonymous uh, third edition book, it's called Freedom Isn't Free. You'll see the story there about that bridge on uh, Christmas Eve, 1981, when I snuck out of the house and writ wrote all the notes, left all my stuff behind and went to the bridge and uh, parked the car on the end of the bridge and went out on the bridge, climbed up on the bridge, middle of the night, snowing Christmas Eve, 1981. Uh, obviously I didn't jump or I wouldn't be here. Uh, the interesting thing is I don't remember coming down from the bridge, but 
what I remember first, I remember going over, I remember climbing up on climbing up on the rafters there in the bridge. The next thing I remember is opening the car door and the light coming on in the car door where I had parked. So I obviously had come down off the bridge, walked off the bridge, got into my car, opened the car, and then the light came on and I couldn't remember climbing down and coming off the bridge. And there in the seat was my wallet and uh, uh, the notes and stuff so that everybody would be clear about what happened. I went back home and my wife, my wife didn't even, wasn't even not even aware that I had left the house. This was two, three o'clock in the morning. 30 days later, I walked into my first OA meeting by accident. Had no idea there was anything about a 12-step program. It was called a fat farm in those days. And all I knew was I needed to lose a couple hundred pounds. And I was told that this is the place that maybe I could do that. My, my employer gave me a, a leave, 30-day leave. And so I went there. As it turned out, it was a rehab based upon 12 steps. <laughs> I had no idea. So they, I got there on a Sunday. They told me tomorrow night, go to room 101 and uh, there's a meeting there. And uh, so I went to room 101 and uh, there was 10 women and me, you know, welcome to OA, 10 women and me. And I listened to these people and I thought, you know, what are these people talking about? And they kept using this word abstinence, abstinence. So after the meeting, I went up to a woman, the oldest woman in the room, I'm 41, the oldest woman in the room, and you know, I, I turned 80, by the way, Sunday. So old is a relative term. So uh, I went up to the oldest woman in the room who might've been in her 50s. And I said, look, I have a question. I don't really understand what was going on here, but you guys kept talking about abstinence. And I said, what the hell does sex have to do with losing weight? And she laughed. And it's the first time I heard the expression, keep coming back keep coming back. So I did. And that's the part I want to talk about now. I want to run through the steps in the next 10 minutes uh, to talk about the solution because this is a 12-step program. I came to the program grossly obese, hardcore, bitter, angry, atheist, and suicidal, as I've said. So the steps for me were very, very much a personality rebuilding. That's what they were. If there had not been an appendix two in the big book, that define spiritual awakening as personality transformation, I wouldn't be here because that's the only reason that I uh, could get, get myself and surrender myself to the program. In step one, I put down the food. I found out after a while I argued, but I finally came to the conclusion that yes, I do have a chemical problem. There is something chemical in my brain that reacts to certain foods the same way an alcoholic act reacts to alcohol. And so, yes, I do have something and that's something for me is sugar and refined carbohydrates, particularly white flour. Those are the things that are just like alcohol. One bite, I'm off to the races, total loss of control. That's the doctor's opinion, talks about that. Uh, and then of course we covered in the OA first step also. Uh, so that's where I was, but I also got pretty quickly that food was the symptom. Food wasn't really my problem. My problem was between my ears, yes, once I had that bite, I was off to the races and out of control. The deal was, okay, how do I stop uh, uh, not having that first bite? And I argued and argued about the word powerless. How can I be powerless? Look at, look at all I've done in my life. Uh, look at all I've accomplished. Look at my education. Uh, look at all I've accomplished in my life. Look where I am. And we were pretty affluent by that time. 
and uh, uh, my tough love first sponsor said, uh, did you like, do you like being at 400 pounds? And I said, no. He said, how did you get to be 400 pounds? I said, well, I guess I ate too much. He said, right. Well, why don't you stop? And I said, well, I have stopped many times. He said, why did you start again? Uh, I said, is that a trick question? He said, well, why did you start again if you didn't want to be 400 pounds again? And I said, well, I don't know. He said, you mean you didn't have the power to not control what you put into your mouth, Don? A big guy like you, an educated, bright guy like you, you can't control what you put in your mouth? He said, maybe your problem, Don, is that you're educated beyond your intelligence. And at first, I thought that was a compliment. It was not a compliment. It was basically shut your effing mouth and take the cotton out of your ears uh, and listen and follow instructions. So I identified the foods, we put the foods down and then of course to get the power to keep the foods down is about to change. Only the first step mentions the substance. Step two for me was uh, nothing had to do, nothing about God. It was about seeing and hearing recovery in the OA rooms. I gained the hope that maybe something was going on here and it was the hope that kept me coming. Step two is about hope. And it was because of recovered people or recovering people or people working the program uh, in, the, in the rooms. Step three for myself was simply a committing myself to the rest of the steps. Surrender for me wasn't giving up. It was deciding to cooperate with all of you crazy people and this dumb program that made no sense, except it seemed to work for so many people and change their lives. They had put a big book in my hand and AA 12 and 12 when I got there uh, into those first meetings. Uh, that's all we had in those days, of course. There was no OA literature except the old, old, they called it chocolate book or brown book in those days. I didn't care for the stories in there very much. So I uh, learned to work the program through the AA 12 and 12 and the, and the big book. So step three for me was just committing to the rest of the steps. Four, five, six, and seven were all, was where all the action was. It was all about change. I had to change. I had identified my poison foods in step one. Now I had to identify my poison thinking, my poison behavior, my poison attitudes. And that had to do with the, the guilt and the shame and the anger and the blaming and the self-pity and all the other things that we talk about in our defects. That was the real problem. So those are the same kind of poison as the sugar and refined carbohydrates and I had in the first step. So I had to identify those in four and five and six and seven uh, were all about uh, changing. Now the big book treats six and seven like one paragraph each. That was not nearly enough for me. I had to go much, much deeper than that. And I can, and remember I was an atheist uh, in, the, in the early days. And so I worked those in a much different way. Uh, they were all about personality change. Today, we'd call it cognitive therapy, something like that. So I identified the problem and then identified the solution. And okay, now let me see if I can go practice the solution. You know, I learned to walk by walking, to swim by swimming, and to work the program by working the program. And I learned to have faith by practicing faith. And I learned to be, have honesty by practicing honesty. I learned to accept life as it is by learning, by practicing, accepting life as it is, et cetera. And that's what four, five, six, and seven were all about. Identifying the problem and then uh, identifying the solution. 
And as the big book says, if we focus on the solution, the solution increases. If we focus on the problem, the problem increases. So today, when I say the seven step prayer, I add on at the end and I do the positive side. You know, like help me today to live in faith and acceptance and tolerance, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I'll come back to six and seven when I talk about the, the, the change. Um, in eight and nine, eight and nine for me were about growing up and taking full responsibility for myself, a lot about forgiveness. I had begun to forgive myself in step five when I had been honest with another person for the, with, for the first time in my entire life. Uh, the, the guilt and the shame began to go away. I began the slow process. I, I sometimes say that's where my spiritual awakening actually began just a little bit. Uh, when I began to accept myself as a human being, no better than, no, no worse than. That's where it began. But at eight and nine, it uh, really uh, cleared up uh, when I made amends, when I took full responsibility for who I was, what I had done, and said from now on, I'm not going to do that again. You know, eight and nine are about changing the things that tend to, to hurt people. 10, uh, 10, 11, and 12, we're learning to do what I do every day now, every day, every day. Um, I do I, my inventory in the morning. For many years, I did it at night, as the big book suggests, in the, in the 11th. It uh, didn't work so good for me. It, it works for me now in the morning. So I do the 10th as part of my 11th in the morning. Uh, I do an inventory on the previous day, all kinds of inventories, some big book ways, some other ways. I have many ways of doing it. Uh, Every morning I spend about today I have, I'm retired obviously at this age. So I have plenty of time. And so I spend from 30 to 40 or even an hour sometimes on 11th step work. I read, I write, uh, I pray, I do the, the serenity third, seventh and 11th step prayer. I do affirmations. I suffer from the depression that came all the way from my childhood. It is always there. It's been with me forever and ever. So there are days when I get up in a really dark place. Well, that's the way it is. I can work myself out of that, sitting there with uh, doing my reading and writing and affirmations and praying and meditating and reflecting. Uh, 12 step for me has been very big. OA service has been my life now uh, since I retired in 1997. My wife and I talked it over. This is second wife, by the way. My wife and I talked it over and uh, we decided that the best thing that I could do would be really just devote myself to OA service. And that's what I've been doing, you know. So I've, I've led about 40 retreats out there, weekend retreats, step study retreats. I've done, I don't know, dozens and dozens and dozens of the 15-week type retreats. And I've, I've taken several hundred people through the steps uh, over the last 30 years. Uh, I've been chair of six different intergroups around the U.S. because we have, we moved several times because of my wife's job, not mine. We followed her career. So I have been very, very involved in service. And uh, it's clear to me that I, there's no way that I hold on to the miracle without trying to pass it on. It's not just conjecture. <laughs> it is absolute proof. It's just no question. I must pass it on. Now, let me finish up just by summarizing some of the, uh, the, the, uh, the new, the, what I'm like now. And this is really the essence of my recovery. It's the, um, and I had, it, had some notes in front of me in a minute. Here we go. Um, this is the essence of my recovery. You know, I had to change. This program is all about change. Put down the food, change, put down the food, change in order to keep the food down. 
So some of the ways, this could be helpful to some people, some of the ways I've had to change. Uh, I've learned to face and deal with life rather than whining and eating. When I came, that's all I did was blame everybody. Poor me, poor me, I'm a victim. Uh, so I just whined, whined, whined. So today I, I've learned no self-pity, no more victim, no more envy or jealousy about others. Uh, I do a gratitude list every morning to help keep me in the right frame of mind for the day. Uh, I moved from hopelessness and that suicide when I came into the program to living a life uh, today of, of hope. Despite my most recent years, last three years now, I am handicapped. I am in chronic pain, unfixable, cannot stand up, have to walk the walker. Uh, so that has been quite a, quite a challenge, but here I am still in recovery. Uh, I've moved from thinking self-sufficiency is man's highest goal to being willing to ask for help, to accepting that I in fact need help. You know, that no man is an island. That's what I got from my father. We're islands, you can't ask for help. And that's of course nonsense. I work hard on staying out of my uh, self-centeredness and controlling, you know, I used to, in my head, I used to do what I call mental master planning. And that was in my head, I was projecting the way things ought to go, what you should do, how you should act, what they should do, etc. So it's the, you know, it's the stage director in the big book, uh, trying to run the world in my head. I wasn't telling people in my head, though, I was running the world and you guys couldn't read my mind. That means you didn't behave the way I thought you should behave. You didn't do what I thought you should be do. And so I was always angry and frustrated. Now, whose problem was that? Yours or, or mine, right? So that's bad, bad thinking. Um, I stopped imposing shoulds and oughts. I impose shoulds and oughts on everybody else. I gradually let go of the selfishness. My life today is based upon how do I, how can I be useful? How can I give? And it used to be based on get, 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 you know, get it for me, get, get what I want. Today, it's totally based upon how can I be useful? How can I, I give? So it's made quite a difference. It's a major, obviously, paradigm shift. I gradually let go of, um, uh, I, I got more, I worked hard on flexibility. That's what I was trying to get to. Flexibility, rigidity, actually, on my first fourth step was at the top of the list. I actually still have the summary of my very first fourth step from 1984, uh, 1982. Uh, and at the top was rigidity, which is just another word for this compulsive obsessive guy that you know started this way, I gotta go that way, I can't change, I was inflexible. So flexibility was a very big thing. I've moved from anger and resentment to uh, learning to live in acceptance of what is. I've uh, moved from that hatred of everybody and animosity into forgiveness. Started with self-forgiveness, of course. You know, that you gotta go through the door of self-forgiveness before you can ever get to other forgiveness. And so that started for me in the beginning in the, in the uh, fifth step, as I said, and then finally in the eighth step. Uh, that wall I talked about, it's long gone. It began to come down. It didn't come down overnight. Uh, but it began to come down in the fifth step. And then over the course of two or three years, uh, it, it, uh, it came down. I began to feel again. And what that meant was I became vulnerable again. You see, I didn't want to be, get, be vulnerable with that wall up. So I became vulnerable again. I began to feel. And that meant that I could, that I felt okay about myself. All right, I will let you in. I can take care of myself. 
and my life totally changed there. I began, I became able to actually love again. And that was not so easy to love again and to receive love. It's even harder, much harder to receive, really truly receive love than to give it. And so that's, that's what I had. And I, I, I found the answer here, I changed. Uh, I move, I've moved from feeling inadequate and unworthy and not enough to I'm okay. I'm valuable, I have something to give, I'm useful, especially to other suffering compulsive overeaters. Five moved, minutes done. Thank you. I've moved from the feeling that something was missing in me to knowing that I have everything I need to make a happy, joyous, and free life, if I choose to. I've learned lots and lots of things in this program. One of the most important is that I'm in charge of how I feel. I am in charge of how I feel. Nobody else is in charge. Knock off the victim stuff. I am responsible. I can change how I feel by changing the sentences going through my head. And I often have to do that every day. That's why I use affirmations. I can do positive af affirmations and move me from, move my feelings from a negative to a positive charge. I am responsible. So, uh, and that's what I learned from that first tough love sponsor who would not uh, tolerate me and my and my uh, blaming and everything. I'm, I'm reaching here for a, a button that he actually gave me. You won't be able to read this, but it's a little button that I used to wear on my lapel. It says no whining. So that's what I learned from him. I am responsible. I've moved from the play acting and the pretense uh, to uh, being who I am. Uh, you know, fifth step, authentic integrity, I have to be who I am. I'm okay. I've got lots of bad things. I've got lots of good things. I'm okay. I'm just a human being. I put a lot of discipline and structure into my life, uh, starting with the eating, of course. I'm still at three meal a day, nothing in between, no sugar, no refined carbs, and I still weigh and measure at home. After all these years, I still do that. Now, I happen to have met up with a woman in Paris, France at an OA meeting in 1986, and guess what? She's still my wife. She is my wife now. So we're both program people. So we both weigh and measure at home. And it's just, just the way it is these days. So uh, I still do that. So that's the structure. And I have the structure, as I said, in my 11 step, 10, 11 uh, step work in the morning. A lot of structure there. Uh, um, I've moved from cynicism to seeing people as basically good rather than bad. If any, I don't know, some of you might be on my blog. You may or may not be on my blog. Some of you may be, but I posted yesterday my articles of faith on there. And uh, that, that talks about moving from the atheism into being able to make a connection with that quiet voice within. Uh, I've moved from fighting the rhythm of life to accepting it as it is, beginnings and endings. And I guess finally, just uh, I could say that I've moved from being a prisoner to, to freedom. Uh, it's, it was a long journey, and, but I've been free for a long time of the obsession. Uh, but I have to do all the things that I have to do. I have the disease. I'll go to my grave with the disease. So I have to do everything I need to do every day in order to maintain that freedom. As I said, freedom is free. And that's the name of the story that I, that I, that I referenced. But uh, lastly, uh, three years ago, um, I've had back problems my entire life. 
but and have had a number of things that I've had to do over the years. But three years ago, it got so bad I could not walk, and so I had surgery. And the result of the surgery was uh, that certain things got worse. Some things, certain things got better, and certain things got worse. So I now have a permanent disability. I have neuropathy in both legs, cannot walk uh, without a walker or, or cane. And uh, I have back pain when I stand up. So I can sit here and talk to you without back pain. If I stand up, then there's tremendous back pain. So that's where I've been for the last three years. So it uh, handicaps me in many physical ways. But what I've learned to do, and I didn't get there overnight, by the way, uh, I had to go through all that anger and that self-pity and that disappointment and that sadness and that grief. What I've learned to do is it's life, guys. All right, I accept it is what it is. So what can I do? Get off of the what I can't do. I can't do that mountain climbing I used to do. I can't do the hiking. I can't do the kayaking. I can't do the 10 mile hikes anymore. But I can still get out. I can still walk on the walker. I can still talk on Zoom. You know, I can still get to meetings. I can still travel in the airport. Of course, it's the wheelchairs in the airport. But of course, these days, nobody's going away. So I'm not going anywhere, and it, no matter because of the pandemic. So I can still do a lot of things. I just can't do all the things that I used to do. And, and so I've come to accept that, that that is just part of life. It is what is now. Uh, so I'm going to continue to be as useful as I can. My life today, I, I always say, is truly based upon using Dr. Bob's words, love and service, and all the many manifestations of those two words. You know, love is, is manifested in compassion and kindness and caring. Service is manifested in sharing my experience, strength and hope with compulsive overeaters like I'm doing now. But even more importantly, not well, as equally important, doing whatever I can to keep OA healthy. So I've done a lot of work for OA uh, at World Service. I was one of the writers of the, the, the next second edition of the 12 and 12. There are many other pamphlets that are there that I've been involved in writing. Uh, so I've done a lot of work there and I will continue to do as much as I can as long as my brain holds out. The only thing wrong with 80 is that, you know, it takes a little longer to remember certain things than it used to. And that doesn't make me happy, but I'm still here, I'm still going. I still feel the miracle and I still wanna pass this miracle on to as many people. And just say in closing, it's a tough world sometimes, we're in a tough times now, but this program works. It can save lives and it can keep you happy and it can get you on the path where you need to be. So if you work the program, it will work for you. Miracles happen, but, when I, but I have to put myself in a position to receive the miracles. And that's working the 12 steps. And that's what it is for me. It's a 12-step program. Thank you.